Tonight, I would like to talk a little bit about daily life practice. I'd like to talk about the cultivation of a wholesome, cheerful, and serene inner attitude in our everyday life. As we know well, we don't have that much control over what life will bring us, what the weather is up to, how our work situation will develop, what will happen to our friends and loved ones, how they will relate to us. It can turn from wonderful to awful any moment and vice versa. Where we do have some choice, if we are awake and present enough, is with regards to how we will meet all these changing circumstances of life. Dharma practice is what enables us to have some influence on the inner attitude with which we meet life, influence on the inner atmosphere which we produce throughout our days. So we may do our regular daily sittings at home, do some mindfulness and perhaps some calming of the mind. And then we did our 30 minutes or whatever, we can take it off, done for today. That's certainly very helpful. Possibly might not be enough. In fact, I'd like to take the risk of making a quite radical statement, you know, here at this retreat. Perhaps what matters most in life has not that much to do with meditation. Maybe it's something much more important than meditation. I've met wonderful wise and caring people who didn't know anything about meditation. If meditation helps to deepen our wisdom in a down-to-earth real way, fantastic. If it makes us more compassionate people, wonderful. If not, what is it good for? There's a number of aspects or qualities which do make a difference in our life if we apply them, practice them. And uh, here I would like to talk about six of them. There are more than just those six. Some equally important, but for now, let's look at these ones. Qualities I find relevant for the cultivation of a wholesome and cheerful mind state. The following ones. Altruistic or compassionate motivation, generosity, equanimity, it's wise humor. It's... Um, Something like non-complexity in terms of our expectations, 
and ideas about things. And gratefulness, appreciation and joy, mudita. First I would like to look for a moment at an altruistic or compassionate outlook in life. This refers to an inner attitude which increasingly cares for the welfare of others and is a bit less concerned about one's own. Though this is probably not one of the easiest of all spiritual practices, one of the most powerful, one of the most effective ones. Uh, Altruistic inner attitude makes our heart and our day more open, more wide. If you turn it around, self-centeredness is the cause for inner narrowness and limitation. An American Zen teacher said, in a self-centered, egocentric mode, we believe to be this little piece of crap around which the entire universe resolves. <laughs> it's like, it seems to be a, a lack of self-appreciation and from that, a need to be at the center of things. And in this, we often don't notice that there would have to be six billion centers of the universe just counting the humans on this earth. When we have a cold, when our bus or the tube or the plane is late, when we don't get the job we wanted, when our partner leaves, when the tax bill comes and turns out to be higher than we thought, which it does quite often, (laughs) then it's not that hard not half as tragical, not really so irritating if we keep things in perspective, if we can see it in relation to the rest of humanity. Like, while we may suffer from a hay fever or some other allergy, six people, usually children, die per minute because they don't have access to clean water. While our bus is nine minutes late or we're stuck in a traffic jam, innumerable people in this world don't have access to transportation at all. So if we remember that wider picture, the nine minutes aren't really so much of a problem. When our attention increasingly turns to others, our own pleasure and pain doesn't matter so much becomes a little less important. And in this way, we unburden ourselves. We begin to get out of our own way somehow. And this creates inner spaciousness. There's more light, more serenity, more ease. We can learn this attitude. We can practice it. Just like parents who are willing and able to put the welfare of their children above their own more selfish interests and while doing that realize it makes them quite happy actually. 
Perhaps we can train ourselves to see all beings as our children or as our close relatives or family. Shantideva, the 8th century Indian poet and bodhisattva, wrote, The childish ones are constantly concerned with themselves. The Buddhas at all times care for others. Just look at the difference between them. Speaks for itself. So, an altruistic attitude creates a sense of inner spaciousness, ease, and also of connectedness. The second quality, generosity. Very helpful, too. And generosity is not such a difficult practice. But here, too, sometimes we're busy and concerned with what we can get out of a situation for ourselves, what we could acquire, buy, gain, own, in terms of more money or materials or furnishings or clothes or pleasures and fun or entertainment or cultural events or books, CDs, videos, DVDs. Or get more in terms of attention, get more attention, get more affection, get more respect or honor or status, or endless list of things I could want for myself. That can be quite trying and tiresome, and very often not very wholesome because the unwholesome opposite of generosity is at work. Things like desire, craving, longing, addiction, attachment, even stinginess. When those properties are really active in us, that's when there's an inner feeling of shortage. It's in this mode that there's a sense of inner poverty, independently of how much or what we actually have. Because we're in the needy mode. We don't have enough. We need things we don't have. It's completely different when we are generous, big-hearted, open-handed, charitable, benevolent, hospitable, tolerant. Those qualities, those mind states in themselves are already wholesome, happy, serene attitudes of life. Then there is a sense of connectedness and of bonding. We feel connected to those we have been generous towards, whether it's material things or attention or affection that we offer, Whenever we're generous, there's a sense of inner wealth, a sense of abundance. Whether we give money to a street musician, or give a gift to a child, or pass on our knowledge, or show someone the way, or offer a friendly hello, we give attentiveness to our partner, 
or send our entire fortune to Namibia. We feel abundance if it's abundance, if it's genuine generosity. We feel joy, we feel serenity and ease. And we plant the seeds of wholesome actions in our hearts. And I'll retell the story I told here before, just because it's such a nice story. It's supposed to be true. A golf player um, had won the tournament, and he got a big sum of money for a first prize. When he left the place and went to his car, this young woman approached him. She was holding her baby, and she said, please help me. I have no husband, I have no job, I have no money, and my baby is very ill and needs treatment at the hospital. Help. He was so moved, he gave her the whole prize money right there. And uh, a couple of days later, he went back to the club and talked to the boys, and they knew already what had happened, and they said, you know, we heard of what happened, and, uh, you know, this woman actually is a swindler. She's known. Her baby isn't ill at all. It's perfectly healthy and well. He lit up and said, the baby is well. Best news in weeks. This kind of generous heart, isn't it? Some of you may be familiar with this radical verse about generosity from Buddhist text. It shows how much our thinking usually is upside down, really, and what the actual facts are. And what the Buddha points at in that text starts to make sense when we begin to understand that it's the inner attitudes and tendencies of our hearts and minds which are responsible for our happiness and well-being, not out the circumstances or possessions. Is the text. What we give away is ours. What we keep at home is not ours. What we give away is of value. What we keep at home is of no value. What we give away, we don't need to protect. What we keep at home, we need to protect. What we give away causes worry, causes no worry. What we keep at home causes worries. What we give away gives inexhaustible wealth. What we keep at home will be exhausted. What we keep at home leads to negativity. What we give away leads directly to enlightenment. So far the Buddha. In the exact same statement, but much shorter, is one. It's on one of the CDs of the pop band Young Radicals. It says, you get what you give. I think that's cool. 
in that respect, I've been very impressed by my Indian Vipassana teacher, Anagarika Manindra, who passed away a couple of years ago. He never had any possessions. His pockets had big holes at the bottom. Whatever found its way into them was immediately passed on and shared. And that's no easy thing if you live in Calcutta among the very poor of India, which was the case with him. And yet he was one of the most cheerful and most easygoing people I ever knew. So again, that generosity and open-hearted, open-heartedness actually bringing ease and lightness and joy. There's an altruistic motivation. There's generosity. Equanimity helps. So often we're plagued by reactivity. Constant attachment and grasping to what's pleasant is tiresome, even with small things. Constant desiring, craving, expectation for what may be pleasant in the future is tiresome. Constant aversion or irritation or just resistance or anger for what's unpleasant or painful is tiresome. Constant worry and fear of what possibly may be unpleasant or painful in the future is really tiresome. It's bad enough that we have to experience what is unpleasant and painful in life, and we can't avoid that it'll happen over and over again. It's bad enough that pleasant experience keeps on changing and disappearing, but to react in addition to it with unwholesome, unhelpful feelings, emotions, thoughts, and actions. It's extremely tiresome. It's far away from a wholesome, happy, and serene way of living one's life. And here, equanimity really is the ultimate solution. Equanimity is the quality of heart and mind that makes any freedom possible. The well-known Zen verse perhaps conveys a sense of it. Let the bird fly in the boundless sky of your equanimity. Free the fish in the bottomless ocean of your tolerance. It's really about the inner spaciousness. What does this equanimity, this inner balance, consist of? It comes about through accepting and letting go. It's acceptance or letting be of the undesirable, the tiresome, the unpleasant experience and situation. It's unpleasant enough when our colleague at work is unfriendly, when the coffee is cold, when the weather is wet and freezing, when the weather is too hot and damp, when in addition we produce disappointment, anger, and a bad mood. That's really not very helpful. Why do we 
managed to do this over and over again. Isn't it amazing? It's already unpleasant or painful, and somehow we <laughs> manage to make it much worse within. Acceptance would be the easiest and most practical solution. We accept, problem solved. Of course, we can lodge a complaint with the waiter if we think that's useful, but to get upset won't help in any case. Letting go. It's unpleasant enough when our friendly colleague leaves the job, when our exciting Saturday night is over, when the precious rose fades, when pleasant and beautiful things pass, when, in addition, we produce attachment, disappointment, and grief, that's really not very helpful. Why do we keep on somehow doing this over and over again? Isn't it amazing? Letting go would be the easiest and most practical solution. We let go, problem solved. We need to remember that possibility. Right in those many, many moments, especially also with small things, where it's actually easy to let go, if we just remember and then do it. We don't need to be deeply enlightened and profoundly equanimous to make our life wholesome, happy, and easy within. But some equanimity definitely helps. Here's a description. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbor travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Altruistic motivation. Generosity, equanimity. Wise humor can help. (laughs) So often we take ourselves that serious. When everything works out the way we wish for, okay, then we're happy or cheerful. But sometimes not even then. We're so serious or grim sometimes that we forget that we're actually fine. But especially when we have or get what we'd rather not have, or when we don't have, don't get what we really would like to have, can we smile then? Can we think it's funny when we're in trouble ourselves? I think there's where wise humor can come in. Humor allows us to create some distance so we can see compared to the universe, compared to history, you know, from Big Bang to the collapse of the, the cosmos, my 
momentary problem isn't really that enormous. And uh, at this point, I have to confess that I do have a language problem. When I translated this talk into English and got to this point, I found that the the one-liners I had, that just didn't work in English. (laughs) They're puns playing on words, and I couldn't translate them. But also I thought it's weird um, to talk about humor without saying anything funny. So I tell you a profound story about the seeker who had a very deep question. He wanted to know what the meaning of life, meaning of the universe is. And he set out on a long, troublesome journey up to the Himalayas to find his guru. He climbed steep mountains and crossed dangerous torrents. A lot of hardship at last with great efforts he found the guru up there somewhere in a cave. He's quite exhausted but happy. He approached him. He did his prostration. And he put his question to the guru. Tell me, what is the meaning of life? The guru thought a moment and said, life is like an onion. I said, Life is like an onion? He's really disappointed. So the guru said, all right, all right, then life is not like an onion. I'm not sure what what it's telling us, but I'm sure it's it's complete. Humor can open and widen our perspective with respect to ourselves, with respect to all of life. And it's not so much the humor at someone else's expense. You know, humor that makes fun of someone else or a person, a group of people, even though sometimes that can be really funny too. And it's widespread, but not exactly very wholesome, usually. Not really wise. Being able to laugh about oneself, that's very freeing, lightening, making things easy. And Lao Tzu said about the Tao, the all, the universe, if one can't laugh about it, it cannot be called the Tao. An altruistic motivation, generosity, equanimity, wise humor, An aspect that I find very important but can't name it precisely is something like non-complexity or simplicity. Instead of complex demands, expectations, instead of attachment to our ideas of how things should be. In a way, it's the same point as the previous one on equanimity. Here, it's mostly about smaller things of daily life. I try to illustrate the two examples. Vacations on the beach, I assume people do that here too. You go on, on the ocean. That's wonderful. Finally, our vacation time is here. We fly there, wherever. Walk to the beach 
and we find that it's not the sand beach, it's gravel. You know, sometimes beaches have gravel. It wasn't mentioned in a, in a brochure, you know, at the travel agent. And um, we like sand, you know, to play on and to lie down. It would have been much nicer. Can we enjoy our vacation just as much, even though it's a little different from what we expected it? And by the way, you know, we, we thought of this room with a view out onto the ocean, which again was on the brochure. We get one at the back of the hotel looking into the road, you know, that's busy with traffic. And we try to change it, of course, you know, if you can do something, do it. But the hotel is booked out and it's high season, the other hotels are booked out too. Can we still enjoy the vacation right away? or after a day or two. Monday morning, we have a real tight full schedule, and we count on that parking space that's usually still vacant at that time. Today, we get there, and it's all taken, full, complete. Is this okay? Or is half of our Monday already ruined? It doesn't has have an influence on parking spaces, right? How we react to it. It's not because if we get upset, there will magically appear another one, which we didn't see before. Can we say, okay, you know, have a problem, but okay. We have a doctor's appointment. Usually there are about three or four people waiting. Today it's 11 that okay? We buy tulip bulbs, red tulips. Spring, you know, we plant them in fall and spring comes. And what do we see? Yellow tulips have come up. <laughs> On the package, they were red. Yellow tulips are gross. They're really ugly. <laughs> All of spring is ruined. Here's the story of the lawn and the dandelion. A man who took great pride in his lawn found himself with a large crop of dandelions. And in this case, that seems to not be quite okay. He tried every method he knew to get rid of the dandelions. Still, they plagued him in his lawn. Finally, he wrote to the Department of Agriculture. He enumerated all the things he had tried and closed his letter with the question, what shall I do now? In due course, the reply came, sir, we suggest that you learn to love them. There are plenty of little things in life. We have an idea of how they should be. Sometimes we hardly even notice you know, that we do that. And we don't need to notice it in all the cases, but as soon as the slightest suffering starts to rise in the mind, that should be a, a lamp going on, even if we're completely unmindful and be whatever. When the suffering starts in the mind, it's saying, look, something needs to 
be attended to, to be let go of, or to be accepted. And again, it's good to remember with the difficult, unpleasant things, that's not where we let go. That's what we would like to, that's where we have to accept. Sometimes we think, you know, it's, I have this very unpleasant experience and I'm trying to let go of it and it doesn't work. We need to accept when it's unpleasant and to let go when it's pleasant things that are about to disappear. To do that in whatever situation, with friends, when eating, especially with food, I think there's millions of ideas we have about how things should be. With our roommates, with our meditation teachers, how they should be. Driving in the traffic to see how long do we hold on to our unfulfilled ideas of how things should be? How quickly can we let go and be at ease again? Accepting, letting go quickly, right away, makes life a lot easier, a lot simpler, and much more enjoyable. Altruistic attitude, generosity, Equanimity, wise humor, non-complexity with regard to our ideas and expectations. Last one I want to touch on is gratefulness, appreciation, sympathetic joy. Very helpful too. Mudita in Pali, one of the most beautiful most simple and most pleasant practices. And opportunities for it arise constantly in our day. Someone is laughing, is joyful. Someone is friendly to someone else. Someone has been winning. Someone has success. Someone receives praise. Someone is healthy. Plenty of reason to rejoice. A person is generous, someone is honest, someone is wise or serene, plenty of reason for appreciation. We have a comfortable home or apartment, or an okay apartment. We have enough to eat, the sky doesn't fall on our head, all good reasons to be grateful. The problem is, we forget very often. Just like Joe, the village priest and his rather cynical friend Joe, they're strolling through a beautiful snowed-in landscape. And the priest exclaims in awe, Look, isn't it wonderful how God had this lake frozen? Whereupon Joe remarks, No big achievement in winter. question is, do we take too many things for granted? Gratefulness, appreciation, rejoicing, they're extremely precious qualities. The Dalai Lama says, if we can rejoice in the good qualities and deeds of others, we automatically take part in the powerful energy that radiates from these good qualities. Just by rejoicing, just by appreciating 
What do we see? And the quality of appreciation and sympathetic joy can be cultivated and practiced. At times it's difficult for us to rejoice in others' happiness, in others' goodness, or even to see it, because we may have quite a lack of genuine respect and appreciation for ourselves, for our own good qualities. Perhaps uh, through the Christian Western cultural conditioning, I don't know. The more we feel worthless at some deep level, the less respect and appreciation we have for ourselves, the more we will be self-centered, the more difficult it is to appreciate others and qualities in others. While the more appreciation there is, the more we feel connected with life as a whole. That's why it's so important to work with self-appreciation. So much more uplifting than always judging ourselves. Rumi says, When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or at flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. We can begin by reflecting on and then rejoicing in our own good qualities, qualities of heart and mind, and then do the same with those of others. We can do it the way we do it in the evenings, around 9.30. And I think it's important each time to be specific, not just to think, oh yeah, there's probably been some good things. To really take a moment to think of our interest in life, in understanding ourselves and each other, to think of the qualities we develop here, like investigation of reality, thinking of our patience and perseverance. It needs to be here. Collectedness we develop, our insights, wisdom, our love, our care, compassion, appreciation, Generosity, trust, equanimity, they're fabulous qualities. And we all begin to radiate, to shine them forth. Then we can reflect on our own wholesome and positive deeds and actions. And sometimes it's a good idea to write them down. Because we may be able to think of two, and then somehow we run out. To write down things. There's so many things we do. I'll give you a few examples. Just maybe your efforts to care for your children, their education and so forth. Or work you do for your support of your family, supporting our relatives, taking care of our old parents in various ways. Our work that supports others in many ways any kind of work, as managers, as therapists, as teachers, as cooks, as bakers, as farmers, as whatever. Even the work we get salary for, you know, if we do it with a good motivation, it's fantastic work and it's a wonderful activity that we can rejoice in. Rejoice in the small or great gifts we make, you know, giving cake or flowers to someone or contributions of any kind, to rejoice in our ethical integrity, intention not to kill 
consciously, not to harm beings. Rejoice in our sensibility, clarity in intimate relationships. Sensibility in dealing with drugs, with alcohol perhaps, or money or power. Rejoice in not stealing. Rejoice in our honesty. Plenty of reason for respect, for appreciation, for joy. And again, there we could look at the things we don't do quite well. You know, maybe we go through the list and there's a few things that we think we could have done better. And we have a choice. We can think, judge ourselves for the, one th- the few things we didn't do well or pick all the ones we do okay and really appreciate that. It makes such a difference. And rejoice in the fact of doing a retreat or doing regularly retreats or outside retreats, maybe reading or studying Dharma books out of interest and spiritual growth, maybe being concerned for human rights or, I don't know, maybe writing letters for amnesty, whatever you do, political initiatives for social justice or for peace. Two... Rejoice in being friendly with our difficult neighbor. Or if that's too difficult, rejoice in being friendly with your friendly neighbor. (laughs) It's good. Some people are unfriendly with their friendly neighbors, so we're friendly with our friendly neighbor. Maybe you're encouraging others, praising others, make compliments. You can rejoice in that. It's wonderful. It's beautiful then we find it easier to do the same with respect to others, appreciating their wholesome, positive deeds and actions. Make this, too, a regular practice. Practice becomes quite fun. So reflecting on good inequalities, then reflecting on good actions, Next, we can reflect about our own happiness, our happinesses, our well-being, our success, our successes in various ways, various areas, our good fortune, and rejoice in that, appreciate it. And then again, do it with others' happiness or happinesses, well-being, successes. Sometimes we're just not used to see it, to see it kind of unfamiliar. It's much easier to see the suffering, and in that way, compassion actually comes easier because we can recognize suffering and open to it to see the happinesses. Perhaps we can first rejoice in worldly things, like maybe a good family or a good relationship situation or a good job situation or material ease or political freedom we have, or the health, if you're healthy. Thich Nhat Hanh suggests that if we don't have a toothache, we can rejoice in not having a toothache. There's plenty of reason to rejoice. Then one could perhaps look at something like the Mangala Sutta, a discourse by the Buddha on blessings. It's on what is valuable and beneficial in life. And many of these inequalities we've seen before 
are mentioned as special blessings. And then it goes on. The greatest blessings are to be content and grateful, to hear the Dharma at the right time, to deeply understand the noble truths of suffering and its end, to realize liberation. This is the highest blessing. Heart and mind unshaken by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure. This is the highest blessing. Those who live in this way are everywhere unshakable and find well-being everywhere. Theirs is the highest blessing. Eventually, we can follow the advice of the Tibetan Lama, Tsoni Rinpoche. Be happy without reason. It's all a matter of practice. All ways of cultivating a wholesome, happy attitude of ease in our daily life. We simply need to actually do it. So in that sense, our practice is just about to start now. And we have this open field from tomorrow on. So, good luck. (laughs) Sit quietly for a moment. This talk was given by Fred Zondal Minute Insight Meditation Society on July 16, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.